Please turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, our text this morning is verses 8 through 11. Last Lord's Day, Jason began this particular chapter speaking of our unity in Christ, being united to Christ, united in his, His death, united in His life. This is the section that really begins our Uh, understanding of sanctification. So far within these first five chapters, Paul has elaborated on our justification and the ground of our justification and the means by which we are justified before God, which is by faith alone. Now, he began in chapter one and in chapter two, as we've talked about for the past number of weeks, he indicts everyone under sin, your sinners before God, etc., etc., This is a grace of God by which Christ has come, and it is by faith alone that you are justified before God. But in in this section here, beginning in chapter 6, as Jason went over last week and as we're continuing today, the question inevitably comes up, well, if we are justified by faith alone in Christ, what then becomes of our sin? What, What occurs there? If we are united to Christ, then what connection does Christ's work have to our present time in which we live? And this is, again, uh, referencing our sanctification, our being conformed to the image of Christ. The London Baptist Confession defines sanctification in this manner, just so we can can have a, a foundation as to what Paul is saying here. He says, the London Baptist Confession, 1689, They who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also further sanctified, really and personally, through the same virtue by His Word and the Spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified, and they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness without which no one, no man shall see the Lord. So you have a good definition of sanctification there. What does it mean to be sanctified, to be set apart as holy, to be seen as holy in the eyes of God? And it has great effect on the practical aspects of our life. If we are set apart as holy, then holiness is what we begin to practice in our life through the working of the Spirit of God in us. As F.F. Bruce says, you put into practice what the calling of God has made you. God says, be holy for I am holy. And he works within our hearts to bring about our sanctification, our being conformed to the image of his son. So there is much that comes to the believer as far as the blessings of our salvation in addition to our justification. In addition to being declared not guilty before God, there are more things to speak of as far as the blessings that God has for His people, which is we are not left in sin, that we are being gradually delivered from sin. We are ultimately delivered from the dominion of sin, absolutely. But from the practicing of sin, 
He brings us along throughout our life as we recognize that sanctification is something that will never be perfected in this life, but it is it, it has begun in this life, and it began in the moments in which the Spirit of God has quickened us or made us alive with Christ or regenerated us when we were born again. And all of these blessings that we have received of our sanctification is all grounded in Christ. That we have been effectually called, we've been regenerated, and we have a new heart, we have a new spirit put within us because of Christ's work, because of the virtue of what He has accomplished and our sanctification is once again grounded in his work because he lived for us, because he died for us, because he lives forevermore. Our sanctification is grounded in the work of Christ Jesus. And we can be assured of our sanctification as what Paul is going to go into here in our passage. We are intimately united with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not just something that is wishful thinking of uh, the idea of being united to Christ, but this is central to our salvation is truly being united to Christ and the bond by which we are united to him is the spirit of God that has been granted to us. Because the spirit of God is God himself, referred to as the spirit of Christ. He is constantly, consistently in fellowship with the Father and the Son, and he indwells us, and by that relation and that bond, we are united to Christ continually. How does that work out then? What effect does that have within the life of the believer? We, we know that we've been justified. We know ultimately that we will be perfected in Christ in the day that he calls us home or in the day in which the resurrection occurs. But what about the present time? And that's where Paul goes into what it means to live with Christ. It's really, our text today is really connected into verse 5. It's the positive side. Verse 5 read, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, that's the negative side, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, Jason had finished up that particular section of uh, verses 6 and 7, speaking of that first portion of verse 5 that is elaborated in verses 6 and 7 of what does it mean to be united in his death? Well, verses 8 and following give us the second portion of that, of uh, we, shall be, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. We're united in that as well. And that's what we're looking at this morning. And what, what does that mean to us? What effect would that have on us? What does the benefit of Christ's work, how is it applied to us now? And in reference to that is what occurs with our sin. This is what sanctification is about, mortifying our sin. And so that's what we're looking at today, is what does it mean to live unto Christ and be dead to the flesh? Really what it boils down to. So if you would, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And we will be looking at verses 8 through 11. And this is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. God's Word says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Let's pray. Gracious God and our Father, we thank you that you did not just leave us in our sin, in our misery, but that you delivered us from it. That sin is no longer our master. We have a new master, one who is altogether good and works all things for our good, who works all things after the counsel of your will. We thank you that by the Spirit of God whom you have granted to us that we may continually be conformed to the image of your Son, that he works within us every day, mortifying the flesh, mortifying the sin, the, the corruption that is still there. We pray, Father, that we will be even more emboldened in our walk with you, according to these passages here, that we would live in view of what Christ has done for us in the now and in the present, not just what we have to look forward to in the future. Father, we pray that you'd bless the preaching of your word. May it accomplish all you desire. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so the question began in verse 1 of chapter 6, as we learned, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Because Paul had just got done saying where sin abounded or where sin increased, grace superabounded all the more. Well, what, what if then, if grace abounds all the more because of our sin, do we continue in it? And the answer, of course, is may it never be. That's what we learned last week. May we never think of that. May that never even enter our minds that we would consider that we could continue into sin and believe that somehow God is more glorified in, in our blatant sin and habitual sin rather than being delivered from it. So Paul uses some very interesting language here to describe what has occurred in the salvation of God's people. You are buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory, raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. This is what it is uh, to be sanctified. It is to walk in the newness of life. It is to be united with Him in the likeness of His death. It's to be united with Him in the likeness of His resurrection. It is new things have come. We are new creatures in Christ. Old things are passed away. We do not go back to the old ways, the old manner in which we lived. And the idea of that is, is as Paul uses this language beginning of verse 8, in view of all of these things of being dead to sin and freed from sin, he says in verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ... And the idea there is not if you may, you may not. It's not that. It's rather, you can translate this, since we have died. This is Paul affirming the reality of the Christian life. If you are truly in Christ, you have died. You have died to your old self. You have died to sin. You have died to the dominion of sin. That's one reason why, if you just think about it for a moment, you begin to think back uh, or try to think back. What was your life like? Before you came to Christ? Or could you imagine yourself now going back to that particular life or that lifestyle, that way of thinking? There are times in which I think back and I try to remember what was my thoughts 
what was the, the ideas that were going through my mind at that particular time? And I have a very difficult time looking back and saying, what was I thinking? I can't picture what I was thinking. I can't, I can't grab a hold of it. I don't know where my reasoning was coming from. And then you think of the idea of going back to that kind of lifestyle, and I can't even imagine that. I can't think of what it would be like to reject all of these wonderful truths that we know so well from the Scripture of what Christ has done and go back to the old manner of life. I can't fathom that. It's just not possible for me. Not possible for you. The things that we look back on and we see that we did and that we said and the, the, the kind of mannerisms and personality that perhaps we had back then, it's, it's very difficult to, to remember very difficult to, to see where we were coming from and, and all of that at that particular time in our life. And that's important to recognize that. That's important to remember as we go through this. And so looking at what the language that Paul is using here, this is a wonderful indicator of the transformation that has occurred within the people of God. He says, since we have died with Christ... We have died to the extent that we can't hardly remember what it was like to live in that kind of a situation or that kind of mindset. And the way that Paul uses this language, there is the certainty of this reality. We have truly died to our old self. This has been a real death, a real death of the old man. As Jason had talked about last week, we don't have, since we've been born again, we don't have two natures in us any longer. We have one. The old is gone. The old has passed away. The old is dead. And now we have a new. There has been a real death that has occurred, a death to our old self. We have to die in Adam that we may live in Christ. We are new creations. And the old had to die that we may live in the newness of life. We were once identified with Adam under the condemnation of God, having only inclinations and desires for sin. We were enemies of God. And so that particular one who was an enemy of God and who delighted in the things that God hates had to die. The self had to die. And there is no turning back now, but only moving forward. We died in the past tense. Do you see that? Now, if we have died with Christ, this is something that has taken place beforehand, that we are now living in the newness of life. This is, now, it is important to recognize that there is an idea that we continually die to sin every day as we are being conformed to the image of Christ, but there was a once for all in which we actually died to the old self. It occurred, it happened, and it was grounded in the very work of our Lord Jesus. You know, Dr. Lawson had talked about when he was, um, I guess, feeling the call to uh, be a pastor and all of that. At the time, he was going to uh, Adrian Rogers' church, except Adrian Rogers was not the pastor at this time. It was the gentleman before him. But he had talked about how they had taken this trip to Israel and... He had, uh, this, the former pastor had made known that he had never been there before uh, to the tour guide. 
And so when they got to uh, Golgotha, uh, the tour guide had asked, has anybody been here before? And the man raised his hand and he's like, now you told me that you'd never been here before. He said, well, I was actually here 2,000 years ago. And you think to yourself, well, that kind of sounds... But in reality, that's, that's what happened. 2,000 years ago, your life was purchased for you. 2,000 years ago, in which Christ died, you died with him. That at God's appointed time in which he would bring you to faith, that the newness of life that was purchased for you then would be applied to you by the Spirit of God. There was a real death that took place. The one who purchased it died a real death. It wasn't a potential death. It was a real death for sin. It was a real death in order that he might taste death for everyone who believes that you would be made alive in him. This occurred 2,000 years ago, but it was always within the mind of Christ to accomplish this on behalf of those that the Father had given him. And so when the proper time comes and God has brought us to faith and there's that real death for sin that has occurred in Christ, but then there's that real death of the old man in which, which occurs when we are quickened by the Spirit of God. The old man is done. He's, a, he's put in the ground, never to be revived again. He's gone. There has been a dramatic change that has occurred within the life of believers. There is a dramatic transformation that has occurred. And again, if you just begin to think for a moment, could you go back to the life that you lived? Could you go back to that kind of reasoning? Those type of mannerisms, that kind of uh, ethics. Once again, being an enemy of God. And we can't think that way. Why? Because we have been transformed. There has been a transformation that has occurred. It is not as if you can become a Christian in the same way that you can become a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Hindu or anything else. You can decide, well, I like the, I like the particular morals of that particular guy over there, that particular guru. I like the rituals and the ceremonies that go along with this over here. It makes me feel spiritual. Christianity is something altogether different. Something actually happens to you. It isn't that I can just choose to be this or be that. Something has happened to you. And it has happened in such a dramatic way that you can't even think of what it was like beforehand. I can't imagine going back. And that is one of the things that, that the scriptures present to us as a, a very strong confirmation of the working of God in our hearts. Do we worry about sin? Yeah. Do we still sin and we still struggle perhaps even with the same sins? Yes, we do. And actually, the London Baptist Confession goes on to say this. This sanctification is throughout the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abideth still some remnants of the corruption in every part, whence arises a continual and irreconcilable War, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. He says there's, they're, they're the remnants of the corruption that was there. The old man isn't there. The remnants of the corruption that were there, we still have to contend with. In every part, 
You think of you know, the, the seat of our emotions in the mind and the will, the entirety of the human being. Once was totally fallen in sin, totally under the dominion of sin. Now having been delivered from that, the mastery of sin has been broken from you. Now you have a new mind, you have the mind of Christ. Now you have new affections because the Spirit of God has wrought those in you. Now you have a new will in which you desire to do the things of God because of the Spirit again working in you. We still have to contend with the fleshly side, the lust thereof, all of that that has been spoken here. But there is a huge difference between someone who blatantly indulges in sin, as one theologian said, basically swims in it and enjoys it, versus someone who recognizes that they have offended a holy God, they desire to do right, sometimes they find themselves doing the wrong. Those are two different people. Those are not the same people. You have died. You have died with Christ. When he died, you died. Sin is no longer your master. The dominion of sin is broken. You know, that's something that we talk about with sanctification. Sanctification has two parts to it. You have, when you study sanctification, you have what's called definitive sanctification, which is immediately upon the regenerating work of the Spirit of God, sin's mastery over you is gone. It's done. But we recognize, too, the process of sanctification. It is something that occurs gradually throughout our life, and that's what's called progressive sanctification. It is a work of God in which He continually shapes us and molds us to be what he desires us to be. So this death has occurred. There is a new life that has been given to you in Christ, being brought to you by the Spirit of God. And so since we have died with Christ in that kind of a manner, being united to him, we believe with certainty is the idea. Believing this reality, knowing this reality, now we believe with certainty that we shall also live with him. Living with Christ equals sanctification. This is the new life that Christ has brought about in you. A new life with new desires. A new life with adoration for God. A new life being, uh, being at peace with God. You have a triumphant life now that overcomes the world, as the Scripture says. You have a new life now in which you truly do have joy in the Spirit of God. And this work, of course is grounded in the very work of Christ as he was buried and as he rose with the newness of life. And so, too, there is the comparison there, or rather the connection with us. Now, it is important to recognize this. As Paul is going through these very things, his focus is on Christ. Here's the things that you need to know. Here's the things that Christ has accomplished. These are the things that we believe with certainty. And we have to stop looking at ourselves and we have to look unto him and remember what Paul is saying because there is a connection to us, but we cannot project our subjective moods and our subjective ideas upon what Paul is saying here. We have to understand this main heading first. This is what Christ did. And then we see the connection there because we are dead to sin because of him. We are now alive to God because of him. Now we live a triumphant life. Now we have an abundant life. Now we have a life that is lived unto the glory of God. 
We live with him. We live in that, that permanent state with Christ. This is a permanent life, an abundant life, a transformative life, a triumphant life, a life in which we persevere, never looking back. You know, if you, this is something we've talked about before, but if, if we believe that we can somehow fall from grace is what it's called or lose our salvation, we have some serious problems here. Because if we just take the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, you'd think of these particular blessings that come to every single believer. Believers don't just get some and other believers get others. You, if you are in Christ, you have all of these. You have the effectual calling. The call that God gave to you, you answered. You were regenerated by the Spirit of God. You've been granted faith and repentance in your conversion. Through faith, you've been justified before God. You've been adopted by the Lord. You've been sanctified. You're united with Him. You persevere in this life and you will ultimately be glorified in Him. Now, all of these blessings are yours in Christ. Now, if we could fall away and truly lose our salvation, then the promise of being glorified is null and void. I promised you this, but you messed up too much, so now i got to take back the promise. You were united to my son, but now I have to sever that relationship because you messed up too much. I promised you that I would preserve you in my hand and you would continue to believe, but apparently I didn't have the power to do so. I set you apart as holy, but now I have to set you back over here as being profane. I adopted you into the family, but now I have to unadopt you. I declared you to be not guilty, but now I have to reverse the verdict. I granted you faith to believe, but now I have to take that ability back. I gave you the Spirit of God that you would be made alive, but now I have to put you back under. And I have to take the Spirit back from you. And that effectual calling, taking it back as if it never happened. Do you see what has to happen if you really believe that you can be dead once again? What Paul is talking about here is the certainty of the new life that you have. And he's using Christ as, as our main example because this is what Christ has accomplished because Christ has died because Christ lives. Now you have died and now you live and you will live. There is that experience of the believer that is being given to us in verse 8. These are the things that we all experience that is grounded in the work of Christ. But then he reminds us. Okay, this is our experience of, of uh, believing in Christ. The experience of God's work in us that is grounded in Christ's complete work. But then he wants to remind us of this. These are the things that you must know. This is the certainty of Christ's work. He says, knowing that Christ, and this is, this is a knowing that is a factual knowing. This is knowing with certainty. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Now, why is he emphasizing these particular aspects of Christ's work? Knowing this, Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. 
Why is he saying this? Again, because we're talking about sanctification here. We're talking about the work of God and conforming us to be like Christ and making us holy. And the point is, because Christ has been raised and never to die again, you have been raised with him never to die again. That's the point. He is never to die again. He will never go back to the cross. There will never be any need for him to give any further sacrifice. That's why when you come to certain denominations under the Christian umbrella, specifically the Roman Catholic Church, that has their view of the Mass, that's why it's such an insult to Christ. Into the work of Christ. Because it isn't just taking the Lord's Supper as what we do in remembrance of what Christ has done. It is the priest calling down the body of Christ into the elements. It's the priest calling down the, the blood. And it is regarded as a, another sacrifice. A sacrifice with no blood, obviously. But it is another sacrifice that is being done constantly. Constantly, every time the Mass is given. That's why it's an insult. Because Christ died once, never to die again. He is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. This is some very interesting language right here. Because this is implying that in some aspect, death did have mastery over him. If death is no longer master over him, then it did have some kind of mastery over him. But in what way? And this is again important because he's bringing out these main aspects of the work of Christ and the life of Christ, the benefits of Christ, everything that Christ has accomplished because this is going to then have practical application for us. Here's what Lloyd-Jones says. He says, what the law pronounces as punishment for sin comes upon him. And so because he bore our sins, death had power over him. It was for this reason and this reason only. We have Christ who is the sinless one, the spotless lamb of God, who never broke the law of God is the idea there. He never sinned, never broke the law of God. He was never a transgressor. And so death had no hold over him. The, the wages of sin is death. And Christ committed no sin. And so Christ had to willingly allow himself to be placed under the curse of sin, which is death. Christ is, as we learned last week, as Jason had pointed out very clearly, Christ is never to be regarded as a sinner. Because he never was a sinner. He never committed any sin. He was treated as a sinner by the Father in this sense, in which we understand that our sins, the, the, the things that we have done, the, the punishment that was deserving of all of our sins, it was imputed to Him, credited to Him, imputed to Him. It wasn't as if He became our sin. He was, in that sense, you could say He was regarded as a sinner because God punished Him as one. 
And he allowed himself to endure then the very wages of sin, which is death. He endured the spiritual death. He endured the physical death. He experienced the physical death. Willingly allowed himself to receive the curse of sin, taking the punishment of our sin. But by taking the punishment for our sin, which is the spiritual death, the justice of God, he endured it, he he satisfied the justice of God, and he removed the sting of death for all who believe in him. Speaking of the physical death. In Hebrews chapter 2, we read this, beginning of verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Christ has removed the punishment for sin because he satisfied the justice of God. He has tasted death for every man. And that's what he says actually back up in verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So you have Christ who takes the sting of death because he himself allowed, he, he allowed himself to be killed. And actually they still couldn't do that. He had to give up his own spirit in the time in which it was done and completed. But he died a real death as Truly man. We, we, cannot think of, we cannot think of Christ as just simply having a body and then, and then the, the Godhead, the divine part indwelling him. That's not what was happening there. He was truly man. As the many confessions throughout the history of the church said, he had a reasonable soul. Perfectly united with his divine nature. The two were never confused or intermingled or mixed. Never, never was there a confusion between the two. He wasn't some kind of a hybrid. But he was truly God, truly man. Both natures, you know, he, was, he was the one man. In his human nature, he got hungry. He got tired. He felt sorrow. He felt grief, sadness. In his divine nature, he was still the, the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. You know, when we were in Bible college, there was one of our professors who asked this question. And at first, you're kind of like, what is the answer to that? He said, when Jesus was a little baby in the horse trough or in the feeding trough, was he, as a baby, still truly God? And you think for a second, well, he was a baby. He didn't really know anything. But then it's like, no, he was truly God. Here he is as a little baby in the feeding trough looking up at the stars that at that very moment he is upholding by the word of his power. 
But I say that just so that we don't get confused when it comes to the humanness of Christ, that he was truly man and that he truly died as a man. And because he truly died as a man and he was raised again on the third day, conquering death, that the sting of death is gone. There is no longer any fear of death. He's rendered Satan who had the power of death. He rendered him powerless. There is no fear any longer. There is no fear in death. So death is no longer his master. He allowed himself to be put to death. But then he elaborates on this. He says, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he now that he lives, he lives to God. Now, again, you know, this is a very interesting language that Paul is using. He doesn't say here as he does or as the writer of Hebrews does. And we'll look at that, too. But he doesn't say that for the death that he died, he died once for sin. He doesn't say that. He says for the death that he died, he died to sin. Once for all. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says he died to that whole relationship to sin into which he once put himself voluntarily for our salvation. That whole relationship of him coming for the purpose of sin, to die and endure the punishment of sin, to receive in himself the curse of our sin, all of that is done. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. And again, you can, you can see that, that the relationship is now gone. There is no relationship between Christ and sin any longer. He is no longer to be regarded as a sinner or punished as a sinner because he paid the penalty and he satisfied the justice of God. He died one time to it and that's it. Again, going back to the writer of Hebrews, for the once for all sacrifice of Christ, this is in numerous places. We'll just look at a few just to, to have this understanding uh, even more so in Hebrews chapter 7, beginning of verse 26, he says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. In chapter 10, he says, beginning verse 10, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for the sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And back up in chapter 9, one more. Verse 28, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, 
will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. For the death that he died, he died once to sin. He died to sin once. Once for all time, as he says. That relationship is no more. He has completed his work. It is done. Now he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he says, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Again, we're looking at Christ, but it has great connection to us, practical aspects to us. The, the certainty of what Christ has accomplished and the newness of life that Christ brings, these things are meant to encourage the believers in Christ to see my sin has been dealt with. I have a new life in Christ. I can never go back. I can never be lost because now he has done it once for all time and the fact that he has raised from the dead means that the Father accepted his sacrifice for me. I will never die again. I will never die, die to sin again. There will never be a need. It's happened one time. And now I live. As what we heard last week, I am crucified with Christ, yet I live. I have this new life, and it's certain, and it's assured to us. And it is so much assured to us that Paul is using Christ as the main thrust of this whole argument. Christ will never go back on the cross. Christ will never die to sin again. He did it one time. And because he lives now, you live. Never to die again. The life that you now live is the same as him in the sense that the life that he lives, he lives to God. He now lives for the honor and the glory of his father. You know, when you look at couple of passages that are very familiar to us. In Philippians chapter 2, you have this wonderful section here in which Paul describes to us the incarnation, all of that, the deity of Christ. But in verse 9, Philippians 2, he says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, go to 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, we'll start in verse 20. <clears throat> but listen to where we end up here. This is the great resurrection chapter. Verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ said is coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. 
But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. This is meaning the Father. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Now, this is amazing to me. When you think of the triune nature of God, and you think of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you think about the work of, of the Spirit of God, for example. You have the Holy Spirit, whom Christ says is going to come in those wonderful chapters in John. He, he talks about the Spirit of God coming. It's, it's at your advantage that I go. If I go, I will send Him. Christ makes an amazing statement in chapter 16. He says, He will glorify me, for He will take of mine and disclose it to you. The Holy Spirit delights in glorifying Christ. And how do we know that? Well, we have the entire canon right here that was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God that points to the one, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the Spirit of God that regenerates those that have been given to Christ that they would call upon Christ in faith. We have the Spirit of God that Christ worked through during His earthly ministry, performing His miracles and rejoicing in the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has always Glorified Christ, having been written of, of he, he moved men to write of him. He moves men and women as he, as he quickens their hearts to call upon him. He glorifies Christ. And he delights in doing so. But then you have the Son. You have the Son of God that delights in glorifying his Father. In John 17, he says, you know, I've glorified you on earth. But his, his glorifying and his honor of the Father didn't stop there. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, not only, not only is his enthronement at the present time a, a glory to the Father, as he takes his seat at the right hand of glory, his, his title then is Kurios, it is Lord, it is the equivalent of the Old Testament Adonai, the Master, the Sovereign. This is to the glory of God the Father. And at the present time, as what we read in 1 Corinthians 15... As Christ is ruling and reigning, as Christ is abolishing all rule and all authority and power, when everything is subjected to Him, He turns and subjects it to the Father. He gives it all to the Father. As one theologian had pointed out, He does so that the Father would receive the greatest glory. It's amazing. It's amazing because they're co-equal, they're co-existent. One is not greater than the other in being. They're the same essence, the same substance, all of that. And yet, there is such a love and devotion to one another that one delights in glorifying the other. It's amazing to me. And so the life that Christ now lives as he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, as he has taken his seat on his throne... Paul says he lives this life now to God, to the Father. And again, there is that, that emphasis here. Looking at the life, the work, the blessings that have come to us in Christ for the very purpose of being encouraged and emboldened in, in our own walk with Christ, in this new life that we have been given 
For his life is now lived for the glory and the honor of the Father, just as your life now is lived for the glory and the honor of the Father. There is such an intimate communion here, an intimate union between Christ and his people, that the very things that are occurring in the life of Christ, not to the extent that they are in Christ, obviously, because there is always a difference between the creator and the creature, but there are some correlations that Paul is giving us here. The new life, never to go back to the old. There is never turning back. As the old hymn said, no turning back, no turning back. That's exactly what Paul is bringing out here. And you do not turn back because, because Christ himself died once to sin and now he lives to God. And the encouragement to you is you've died once to sin and now you're living unto God. There is such an, an intimacy here of that union with Christ. You know, John Murray says this, nothing is more central or basic than union and communion with Christ. He goes on to say, Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, not only in its application, but also in its once-for-all accomplishment in the finished work of Christ. You are united with Him in His death. You are united with Him in His resurrection. And that's what Paul is elaborating on here. Now, having these, these realities given to us, What does he say? He gives us in verse 11. Verse 11 is, as some theologians have pointed out, this is the first exhortation in the book of Romans. The first time that you have something said, now do this. Paul has taken five chapters, five and a half chapters, elaborating on doctrine and more doctrine of the person and work of Christ, of what he's accomplished, and, and all the blessings that have come to us specifically in the work of justification, all of those things. And then finally he gets to a point in which he says, now do this. Consider yourself in this manner. Now it's just something to point out there. I mean, you see the importance of doctrine. You see the importance of teaching that leads up to a practical application. That's why it is so necessary to actually explore what the Scripture tells us and, and to dig out the doctrine of it, because if we understand the doctrinal implications, that has bearing on the application. And Paul has been doing this for a number of chapters now. You were once under the condemnation of God. For those who were the people of God, you were hypocrites. But now Christ has come. And because Christ has come through faith in him, through the one who does not work, his faith is credited as righteousness. Here's Abraham for an example. Here's David for an example. Blessed are those whose transgression are forgiven and whose sin is covered. Now we've been justified by faith. Faith produces these things in our life of hope and proven character. Hope doesn't disappoint because you have to remember again that Christ died for the ungodly. And why was it you were ungodly? Because of Adam. You were a representative of Adam. Now you're a representative of Christ. Now you are justified by faith. Are you to continue in sin? May it never be. There is another blessing that has come to you, which is your sanctification. And your sanctification is being given to you or wrought within you by the Spirit of God. And it is grounded in the work of Christ, His death and His resurrection. And in light of all of that, Even so, 
Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Here's your first exhortation from the book of Romans. Consider yourself. This Greek word, legizomai, has the idea of analytical thinking, careful reasoning, careful thinking about this particular reality. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Again, one writer says, if we really are joined to him, and everything that happens to him of necessity happens to us, it follows that if we have died with him, we must also rise with him. End quote. So, in light of this, consider yourselves, give careful reasoning here, careful thinking Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. And sin is not your master. Daniel Doriani, he says this, When Paul tells believers to consider themselves dead to sin and alive to God, it is because we are dead to sin and alive to God. Pretty simple, isn't it? This is the reality. We still have to deal with the, the remnants of the corruption, yes, but we are dead to sin, no longer under its dominion, no longer under its mastery. Beforehand, you could only sin. That's all you could do. You had desires to sin. That's all you ever did. But now, because of the new life that has been brought, brought, brought by the, and grounded in the work of Christ, now we have the privilege of living unto God and living for the honor and the glory of God. And with sin, the Scriptures make us a promise. Now, this is actually a promise. It's sometimes taken to mean something different, but you'll, you'll understand what I'm saying when I, when I read it. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. There is this promise that with every temptation there is a way of escape. It isn't that I'm so trapped that I cannot overcome this. It is, am I strong enough in this moment? Because I can. And I can because the Spirit of God in me. And those are the difficulties that we face in warring with ourselves. But the reality of it is, is you've been delivered from sin. The reality is, is that you have a way of escape for every temptation no temptation is so great that there is no way of escape. So consider yourselves to be dead to sin. It's no longer your master, so let us stop acting like it is. That goes for me. That goes for you. Let us not keep acting as if it is our master because it's not. As Jason talked about last week, the, giving the illustrations, you're in one particular field and you're working and toiling over here for a master. Now you've been delivered over to the other field. You're in a new environment, a new master. You cannot serve the two. You serve the one. So let us then live in such a way that we are living in that reality. Christ has accomplished all of these things so that I might live unto God. 
that I would be delivered from sin, delivered from bondage. So some things then to look at. One, he gives us the application right there. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Dear friends, there are always a way of escape. Sometimes the way of escape eludes us because we're not thinking in the, in the right manner. Sometimes we allow our flesh to overwhelm us. There are times in which we, we say things or do things that are indeed sinful. But we say those things and we do those things not because, not because we don't have a way of escape, but because we're not looking for the way of escape. Be assured that what Christ has brought about in you, your transformation is a confirmation that God is at work in you by the way that you think now. Your thinking and reasoning is different. When you do commit sin, you recognize that I have offended my Lord and my God. Oh Lord, forgive me. Help me. Keep me close. Those are the things that we pray. Why do we pray that? Because our thinking has changed. We don't say, I'll just ask God to forgive me. That's his job. We say, oh, Lord, forgive me because I recognize that I've offended you. An enemy of God does not do that. But one who is in Christ does. So be assured then of the work that God is doing in you with the changing of your mind and the changing of your affections. How is it that you can love someone that you've never seen? Have you ever thought of that? The great affection that you have for Christ, for the Father, for the triune God, that you just delight so much and your heart warms so much as you consider the things that Christ has done and the Father giving the Son and the Spirit residing within you, and you have such affection for one you've never seen. How is that? Because the reality is that the Spirit is indwelling you. The Spirit has affected you. The Spirit has made His presence known in you through the experience of your daily life in Him. This is confirmation. So be assured of God's working in you. Be, regard yourself, consider yourself as dead to sin, no longer under, your, under its mastery. And then when the day comes that the Lord takes us home, we don't know when it'll be. Obviously, we don't have a time in which God has said, now that you're converted, you have until this date here. We don't have that. We need to live in view of living a long life, a long life for the glory of God. But when that day comes, there is a great confidence that we can have, recognizing Christ died for me, and he was brought back to life. He rose from the dead. He conquered sin. He conquered death. There's no longer any sting of death anymore because my Lord has risen, and he says to me, all who behold the Son and believe in Him will have eternal life. And so I can be assured and I can be confident in my death knowing that Christ is, has secured me. 
And I have nothing to fear because he has rendered Satan powerless. He has destroyed the works of the devil. He has cast him down, as he says in Luke 10. He has judged him, according to John 12. I have nothing to fear and you have nothing to fear when it comes to the time of your death. That's why Paul says, for me to live, Christ, to die is gain. I'm torn between the two. I wish to stay here and bear more fruit because that will be better for you. But I desire to depart and go be with Christ. And Paul's getting ready to be beheaded. How is it that he can look at his, at his death and saying, yeah, they're going to lop off my head, but think of where I'm going to be. Because he had great confidence. Confidence in his death. Because Christ died and he lives. Paul knew that I died and now I live to Christ and he will bring me home. So we have a great confidence there too, dear friends. So, your sanctification is something that is continually being done in you through the Spirit of God. Your sanctification means your, your union with Christ. Because you're being sanctified, you're, you're able then to overcome sin. You still contend with it, but there's a progression. There's a moving forward. Sometimes it doesn't seem as if we're moving forward. Sometimes it's very small steps. But there is that persevering because that is one of the promises to you. So when you begin to look at your own subjective feelings and am I this, am I that, I don't know. Don't look at yourself. But do what Paul is doing for us right here and say, Christ is the one who died and who lives. Christ is the one who died to sin, no longer under the mastery of death. He's risen from the dead, and now he lives unto the Father. And now I am found in him. Not in myself, I'm found in him. So be confident. Be assured, dear friends, of your salvation. And may each day we grow more and more in holiness as we seek to lay hold of that which laid hold of us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you, Father, for our sanctification. Thank you for this work that the Spirit of God has done in us, a work that we could never do. We can't make ourselves holy. He does. We can't make ourselves righteous. He does that. Father, give us... Such encouragement as we remember where, where you have brought us from. As we look back on our former manner of life, we see who we once were or try to see. We remember perhaps some of the actions that we did and the joy that we took in doing them that now grieve our hearts. Father, help that to be an assurance, a confirmation to us, knowing with certainty, you have done a great work in us. You've changed our affections. You've changed our minds. You've, you've changed our will. Father, help us every day. We need you every day. We need the Spirit of God working in us every day, protecting us, keeping us from evil, showing us the way of escape for temptation. We need him every moment. And we pray, Father, that he would continue to do a mighty work within us. And we know he will because that is the promise that you have given to us. 
Let us take joy in that. Father, be with us, watch over us, and may we ever live for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen.